Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bring our hearts to you, our ears, our minds, the way we're going to process the thoughts and the words, truths that we're going to hear. And pray, Father, that all together they would bring growth and maturity, responsibility, and honor to your name. Thank you that we have the privilege to gather together in a country that we can sing and worship and read the Bible freely. We thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that we take advantage of it and apply these things to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we begin a study on one of the most fascinating people in history, Paul the Apostle. It's such an overwhelming topic that, honestly, I didn't even know really where to begin. I've loved studying about Paul for years and to refresh myself on some of the truths about his life, his upbringing, has already been very rewarding. The big thing to remember with Paul as we work our way through his background today, is the change that occurred in this man. It's monumental. And we'll discover that in the next few weeks, this change that transformed him from a tyrant to an evangelist. I want to start off with a a little story. Once upon a time, a prince fell in love with a fair maiden. An enemy captured her and held her captive in a tower. The prince had plans to rescue, and so he recruited the help of two small animals. The first was Claude, the caterpillar. Claude was a crusty character with a bad attitude. The prince gave him the message, and he started inching his way toward the tower. Claude was a bit fat, and he complained as he sweated. Wouldn't you know it? The sun would have to be shining today. Just then the weather began to change. Clouds moved in and little drops of rain started falling. And Claude grumbled, Rain, great, I hate rain. But he made his way to the tower. He searched for a way up and he found a vine growing alongside. Inch by inch up the vine he went, but it was a rose bush. And all the way up you could hear him say, Ouch, ouch, ouch. When he finally reached the window, he said to the fair maiden, Hey, lady, come here. You the maiden in distress? She nodded as she looked down at this sweaty, muddy caterpillar. Claude gave her the once-over and said, You're kidding. I came all the way up here for the likes of you? I don't know what the prince sees in you. But anyway, he sent me with this message. Get ready. He's coming to get you. Five o'clock sharp, understand? And off he went. Next, the prince sent Barney the butterfly. Barney's wings lifted him gracefully into the air, and he flew around until the maiden noticed him, and he landed softly on her finger. She brought him close. As he relayed the prince's message, he said, Lovely and favored maiden, the prince loves you dearly. At the sound of his voice, Jump from the window and into his arms. And she replied, Thank you, beautiful butterfly. You're so sweet. But tell me, 
Why did that caterpillar bring such good news in such a nasty manner? He seemed so rude. Oh, you mean Claude, said the butterfly. Well, that's just Claude. I used to be that way too until I was transformed. Saul of Tarsus gets transformed from a crusty old character into some beautiful creature who soared God's love and God's grace. And we're going to look at that in the next few weeks and especially today as we look at the profile of a radical rabbi. Today I want you to notice with me his personal profile. What he was like growing up. What made this guy so unique? And what was his early years, early stage in his life like? What kind of stuff did he learn in school? What was his home life like? And how was all of that personal background fitted into the kind of person God would make him as the apostle to the Gentiles? And moreover, why, with all of that rich background, does Paul at one point in his life, and you'll read it today, say, it all means nothing to me? I have a friend, and you've heard him on a few occasions here. His name is Marty Getz. He's a piano player, worship leader, born-again Jewish believer. And he has one of his classic songs, Hallelujah to Yeshua from a Jew who never knew ya. (laughs) I love that song. And I've heard it a hundred times probably over the years. This is Hallelujah to Yeshua from a rabbi who never knew ya. Saul of Tarsus attains an incredible high stature in Judaism up until the day of his salvation. What I'd like you to do today is take off your 21st century glasses that would view him as a Christian preacher and put on your first century glasses that would view him as a Jewish man in a Greco-Roman culture. And we're going to follow the footsteps of Paul. We're going to see how he went from his hometown of Tarsus, made his way to Jerusalem to be schooled in higher education, went toward Damascus on a mission, was apprehended by the Lord, went back to Jerusalem, then to Arabia for a few years, then back to his hometown in Tarsus until he finally makes his way to Antioch where he begins a whole new venture of ministry. Today, then, let's look at his profile, and I've had you turn to Acts 21 and 22, because I want you to see what he was like in his secular profile before we look at his spiritual profile. Now, let me give you the background briefly. In Acts 21, it's toward the end of his life, toward the end of his ministry. He is in Jerusalem for the final time. He is in the temple, and false accusations are made against him that bring his arrest And we pick it up in chapter 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? This is a case of mistaken identity. And Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, 
a citizen of no insignificant city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So he does that. And in chapter 22, Brethren, fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. They kept more silent. And he said, now he's speaking to the crowd, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our fathers in the law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Now, go down more toward the end of that chapter. He gives his speech in Hebrew. The commander doesn't understand it because he's speaking Greek and Latin. He doesn't understand the Hebrew-Aramaic language. So the crowd erupts into a riot. Now look at verse 24. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know what they shouted, why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum... I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he bound him. So with just those verses from Paul's own lips, we're starting to see a little bit of his background, his personal secular profile. We understand, first of all, he came from a Greek culture. He was born in Tarsus. And Tarsus, well, if you were to find a map in the back of your Bible and, and go to that big blue dot right in the middle, the Mediterranean, and, and uh, take your finger and trace it up the coast of Israel, just a little off the coast, you'll come to land in this little cusp of what is modern-day Turkey, and you'll come right to Tarsus. Tarsus was a city in a plain in between the mountains and the sea, very cosmopolitan, at the crossroads of Asia Minor and Syria. And about a half a million people in population during that day. Very, very famous city. And Paul wants his audience to know it wasn't a hick town. He said, I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, It's not a mean city. It doesn't mean an angry city, but it's not an insignificant town. Tarsus had a rich history. It was conquered by the Assyrians, Shalmaneser. The Assyrian was there, the conqueror. Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen, came to Tarsus. Alexander the Great walked through the streets, had a desire to spread Greek culture there, which he did. And this became a Greek educational outpost during Paul's era. There were three great universities there um, in the ancient world. 
one at Athens, one at Alexandria, and one at Tarsus. So these three were sort of like the Harvard, Yale, and Princeton of the ancient world. That's the place he came from. Uh, Tarsus of Cilicia was also famous for something else that proves very important in Paul's upbringing. It was a place where they made tents. Uh, It was famous for a, a black wool product of a dark haired, long haired goat that still forages through the hills there. And Paul's father was a master tent maker. And he passed that trade down to his son because his son was studying to become a rabbi. And every rabbi had to have a trade as he would grow up and learn the Hebrew scriptures. So Paul grew up there in that city and he was familiar with Greek culture. We know that he was familiar with Greek philosophy, Greek poetry... Because later on, you will see him in Athens. And he stands up on the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And he addresses the men of Athens. And twice in that speech, off the top of his head, he pulls out two sayings from two different Greek philosophers. One is Eratus of Soli, and the other is Epimenes. He quotes them freely. Here's a guy who spoke Greek. That was the lingua franca of the empire at the time. He spoke Latin because of his Roman ties. He spoke Greek because of the synagogue. And he spoke Aramaic, which was the language of post-captivity Judea. All of that in one guy. We also find that he's a Roman citizen in chapter 22. Paul says, are you sure it's lawful for you to bind a Roman citizen? And they backed up. Whoa, don't touch him. Let me tell you a little bit about that. Somebody last night said, well, wouldn't everybody in the Roman Empire be a Roman citizen? No, they wouldn't. The Romans conquered the world. So there were the Roman citizens and the subjugated people. But they were the boss. A Roman citizen, a civus Romanus, you could become one four different ways. Number one, you could be born a citizen because your parents were Roman citizens. Number two, if you fought in the military or had two or three years of military service for Rome, they would offer that as a reward. Number three, you could be given Roman citizenship by the emperor himself because of some great deed that you did for Rome. Or number four, you could buy it. And it was very costly. Two years' worth of wages of a working man it would cost to buy Roman citizenship. That's why this centurion says, no, wait a minute. It cost me a lot of money to become a citizen. Paul said, I was free born. I was born one. If you were a Roman citizen, you had rights, privileges. Number one, you couldn't be bound. It was unlawful. Number two, you could never be scourged like Jesus was. And number three, you would never be crucified. There was a fourth advantage. If you were a Roman citizen and you were in a court case, you could always appeal your case directly to Rome, even to Caesar himself, which Paul does. When he is arrested in Jerusalem, he's brought to Caesarea, and he gets the runaround with his court trials for a couple of years. Till finally they bring out a new Roman governor, and he goes through all the rigmarole of Paul's trial, and Paul just says, you know what? I stand before Caesar's court where I ought to be judged. I appeal my case to Caesar. And the governor said, you appeal to Caesar, then to Caesar you will go. That was the right he had as a Roman citizen. 
What about his name? We call him Paul. Uh, He introduces himself as Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Shaul was his Hebrew name. Now, some of you may think that his original name was Saul, but when he became a Christian, he changed his name to Paul. That would not be true. Actually, he lived with both names his whole life. Actually, when he was born, it was required of every Roman citizen to be registered with three names. Very similar to us. We have our family name or our last name. We don't know what Paul's was. It's not recorded. Then you have the first name, called in Latin the praenomen, and that was for him Shaul, Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel. And then there was an additional name called the cognomen, and that was Paul, or Paulus. So he was born on the eighth day after his birth. He was circumcised as a young Jewish male, and he was given the name Shaul. On the next day, the ninth day after his birth, he was given the Roman cognomen, that additional name, and that's where he was called Paulus. Paul's secular background has always fascinated me. I believe that all that made Paul, Paul, including Greek culture, education, Roman citizenship, all of that... God took and providentially used for His glory. I think it's a great illustration of Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. So that your heritage, your background, your education, your ethnicity, your culture, all of that, God weaves together and says, I have a unique place for you to serve. Listen to the words of Paul in Acts 17:26, his words to the Athenians. From one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Now you apply that to yourself. Your background, your ethnicity, your culture, and even your family baggage, as we like to call it. All of that stuff that makes you you. It all forms a tapestry. Some of you look back on your background and there are certain things that, well, you're a little bit ashamed of. You wish people wouldn't know about. There's skeletons in the closet. There's family members you don't want to mention. And you think, how is God going to use me with this family? Listen, Every family tree has nuts on it. That's all right. And I believe God loves to redeem it all, restore it all, and use it all. I love when I see a restored car. An example, a new Chevy's great, but you know, you get somebody who has a restored, pristine 57 Chevy. Wow. That's a whole lot better. It might be a project at first. It might take lots of sweat and tears and TLC, elbow grease, money. But when that's restored, that project is awesome. Some of you like projects like that. You know what? God does too. 
God takes all of the stuff of the past, good and bad, and can weave it together and make something great out of it. Example is Joseph. Talk about a kid who had baggage. He had a bad upbringing. His brothers hated him. They sold him into Egypt as a slave. And while he was in Egypt, things went from bad to worse. He was misjudged. He was slandered. He went into prison. But eventually God turned the story around, so much so that when he had his firstborn child in Egypt, you know what Joseph called him? Ephraim. It means fruitful. He said, I'm going to call him fruitful because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. All of the past, all of the stuff, all of the sin, God has used it for this. A few years later when his brothers come to Egypt for food and they find out Joseph knows who they are, they get very skittish thinking, "Uh uh-oh, time's up, we're toast. Remember what Joseph said to them? He said, listen. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive as it is this day. That's the providence of God taking all of that mess, all of that background, all of that culture, and weaving it into a beautiful tapestry. So that's his secular background. Now we want to look at his spiritual profile. Did you notice in both of the cases that Paul addresses either the commander or the crowd, he introduces himself as I am indeed a Jew. He didn't say, I want you to know, I am a Christian preacher. In fact, as I read the Bible, Paul didn't call himself a Christian. Because you probably know that the term then was a derisive term. It wasn't a good term. So Paul introduced himself as, I'm a Jew. And he never ceased being Jewish. That was his culture. That was his background. Over and over again, you'll read in the book of Acts, and Paul went to the synagogue as was his custom. That was the cultural, spiritual center. Why am I saying that? Because I want you to understand something, that Christianity is not some Western religion, as I hear it called by some, some Gentile brand. It is Messianic Judaism where God has extended the net to everyone. In Romans, Paul will say this, you're a wild olive branch grafted in to the tree of Judaism. So Paul says, I'm Jewish, and he received the Jewish Messiah. Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, and let's look at what he says about his spiritual upbringing. Now, you've got to understand a little bit about this chapter. Paul has some enemies, and his enemies are attacking him. And every time that happens, Paul finds himself in a weird position of having to defend himself. He doesn't want to, but he does a couple of times in the New Testament. Here's one of them. Verse 4, Philippians 3. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So now he's going to begin. And this really isn't his testimony as much as his bragamony. He's going to brag about his pedigree, his spiritual profile. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. 
concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He takes us back to eight days after his birth. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I'm not a Jewish convert. I'm a Jew by birth. I'm a Jew by covenant. I'm a Jew by ritual. This was part of my original heritage. And understand something. Paul was proud of that heritage, especially early on in his life. If you go to Jerusalem today, the tour guides like to say things like, go ahead, walk up to the Western Wall and pray right there at the Western Wall. Even though they say God will hear prayers all over the world, here it's a local call. (laughs) They love to say that. They want you to know, hey, this is God's town, man. This is where he hangs out. This is where the temple once stood. And Paul proudly leaned on the heritage of being circumcised, that ritual of every male Jewish baby. And you know what? A lot of people, perhaps even some of you, look back to your early heritage and you lean on a ritual. I was baptized. I was christened. I was confirmed. Understand something about Paul. And he's making the point clear. Paul was very devoutly spiritual and very religious, but he was very unsaved. He was very unsaved, very devout, very spiritual, very religious, but he was unsaved to his own admission. He says that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews in the same passage. Or, better translation, I was a Hebrew born of Hebrew parents. I was Greco-Roman in my culture and citizenship, but very Jewish in my upbringing. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. I kept the traditional Hebrew culture. So, though I had a Greco-Roman profile, he would say, I made sure that I was never tainted with the values or the temptations of the Greek culture. The synagogue he went to would speak Hebrew and Aramaic, not Greek. He was a purist. Now, let me help you understand what it was like to see him grow up. You ready? While he was a toddler, he was already learning the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. As a toddler, he was taught to memorize it. And he had to recite it back to the Hazan, the ruler of the synagogue. So picture little toddler Saul saying in that cute little voice, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That's just the first verse of several. A little toddler had to say that. And the Hazan made sure that he said it with the right rhythm, cadence, emphasis, cha in all the different words. All of that had to be perfect. That's a toddler. 
By the time he was five years old, little Shaul had to memorize the Hallel. That's six psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. It's the psalms that are sung every Passover. Five-year-old, he had to memorize them. At age six, he was taken to the synagogue where he learned to read and write in the Hebrew script. At age ten, he was already studying the oral law, the Mishnah, the tradition of the fathers. At age 13, 12 or 13 back then, he was given the status as an adult member of the Jewish community. He was made a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandment. By that time, he had mastered Jewish history. He was able to wrap his hand and his forehead in the phylacteries, the tefillin, the prayer boxes, every morning for his devotions. Okay, now, when he's 15 years old, picture your 15-year-old boy or girl. At age 15, he enters into a rigorous study of the codified oral law, the multi-volume set, the Talmud. Okay, that's 15 years of age. Now he's ready for serious study. Now, at that point in his life, they ship him off to Jerusalem for deep rabbinical study for about five or six years. Notice what he says in this profile. He says that he was a Pharisee. Now, you've read the New Testament. So you see that and go, I wouldn't brag about that. I know what a Pharisee is. I read what Jesus said about these characters. Every time Jesus mentions them, he says, You hypocrites! You whitewashed sepulchers! However, Pharisees originally were not like that. Originally, Pharisees were the most devout Bible readers, Bible students in Judaism. You see, the word Pharisee, parashim, means the separated ones. They basically said, look, we don't want to go into captivity again. We're going to keep the law, study the law, do it with all of our heart, be separated totally unto God. That was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he was mentored, Acts 22 tells us, by a famous guy named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel, or as they call him, Gamliel, was the grandson of, I'm going to call him the MVP of Judaism, Hallel, the famous rabbi who is written about everywhere in Judaism. The grandson was Gamliel, and Gamliel taught Saul, Shaul, mentored him. Gamaliel was so famous that even the Talmud said when he died, the glory of the law passed away. Because he was such an articulate, incredible teacher. Now, while he was under Gamaliel, he would learn from this mentor every day. And I'll tell you why I'm going into detail here. It's when you understand his training with Gamaliel that you understand why Saul of Tarsus was so angry and hateful toward Christians and decided, I'm going to go out and find him and arrest him. Because Gamaliel, his mentor, a contemporary during the time of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, saw the growth of the Christian church in Jerusalem And Gamaliel wrote a very famous prayer condemning the Christian heretics. Let me read it to you, a portion of it. Let there be no hope to them who apostatize from the true religion, Judaism. And let these heretics 
How many soever they be, all perish in a moment. That was the mentor of Saul of Tarsus. No wonder he turned to be so vitriolic. Well, during this time, he was memorizing great sections of the Old Testament, huge portions of Jeremiah and Isaiah, which would prove helpful later on when he wrote letters to Rome and Galatia. He also learned a very specific way of communicating with his mentor, uh, a question-and-answer debate forum known in the ancient world as the diatribe. This would hone his debate skills, his rhetorical skills, so that later on he could stand before Athens, stand in synagogues, and articulate with great depth the truths of his faith. Also in verse 6, he tells us about his spiritual zeal. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. In other words, I was so zealous and sold out to Judaism that I'd arrest and kill people who weren't. That's how into it I was. Look at his spiritual practice. Concerning righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. That's quite a statement. I don't know if you understand how impacting that statement is. I've never met anyone who could say that. Concerning righteousness, if you want to say, I want to find a guy who keeps all the laws, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, and the Oral Law, who's blameless. Paul says, that would be me. Incredible. Here's a guy who could say, if anybody deserved to be saved, deserved heaven, it would be me. Boy, that's dangerous thinking. I wonder if some of you think you deserve to go to heaven. I know I don't. I know that it's all by God's grace. I talked yesterday to Franklin Graham. He told me about a politician he was speaking with who may run in a couple years for presidency. I won't mention who it is. But the guy said he was a Christian. Well, you ever tell that to Franklin Graham, he's going to find out. You make sure you know what that means. (laughs) So Franklin goes, well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? That was my Franklin imitation. (laughs) All right. The guy said, well, I'll tell you what, when, when I'm up there, if I get up there and God says, why should you enter in? I'm going to say, I married an angel. She's a beautiful, wonderful woman. We raised several great children. They married well. They're wonderful people. So I'm going to point to my family and say, that's why I deserve to get into heaven. Now, that was Paul's thinking. I did it all. I earned it all. I deserve to get in. Well, Paul's about to make a very important point as we close. You can have enough morality to keep you out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get you into heaven. How do I know that? Because of verse 7. Verse 7 is our third and final point. We'll just briefly touch on it and we'll close. This is his salvation profile. Notice what he says after his bragamony. This is who I was. This is what I accomplished. He says, but. In other words, there's a change that happened to me. There was a time I turned from caterpillar into butterfly. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. 
What things does he mean when he says, These things I count as lost? What are they? All the things he talked about just in the previous verse. Circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee, etc. All of these things, which are not bad in themselves, just not good enough to get me saved. I've counted as loss that I might know Christ. Your baptism, your christening, your confirmation, your first communion, um, your church membership, all those things are good things. But they are not good enough to get you into heaven. Understand that's his point. Now listen carefully. A good thing can become a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. So even a man's religion can damn his soul forever if he tries to use that as a substitute for simple trust in Jesus Christ alone. Now, Paul makes a very important point, verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, he says, I counted these things lost. That's past tense. Verse 8, yet indeed I also count. That's present tense. Now listen to this. Paul wrote Philippians 30 years after his conversion. This is what he's saying. I made a choice 30 years ago. I don't regret that choice. The choice I made back then, I still make today. And all the things that were part of my profile that I trusted to get me favor with God and get me into heaven, I count them as rubbish. You see that word rubbish? Now I'm going to tell you something that's not very polite, but it's in the Bible, okay? You ready? The Greek word for rubbish is a very, well, it's a guttural word. It literally, it's skubala in Greek. It means the excrement of animals. It's the stuff that owners would brush out of the stall because it stinks. So think about what Paul is saying. I made a choice 30 years ago to follow Christ and not trust in my own religion. It's the same choice I still make because for me to trust in anything else stinks. John Dyer said this, A man can go to heaven without riches. A man can go to heaven without honor. A man may go to heaven without learning. A man may go to heaven without friends, but he will never go to heaven without Jesus Christ. I applaud whatever background, whatever spiritual training, whatever education you have, but if you are resting in that for salvation, you need a transformation. You need a spiritual and a salvation profile. Because with Paul, they were not the same. Okay, I started this morning with a story about a caterpillar. Allow me to end with another one. There was these two caterpillars, and they're walking through the grass together. And they're enjoying fuzzy, furry fellowship. <laughs> and as they're walking through the grass, as caterpillars, they look up in the sky, and they see this butterfly. And one nudges his furry friend and says... You could never get me up in one of those things for a million bucks. <laughs> Truth is, that's his destiny. Some people will look at the gospel and look at followers of Christ and say, 
I'd never be one of them in a million years. All right? Stay a crusty old caterpillar. Or follow the destiny that God would have and want for you to be transformed, totally changed by His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for insight into one of the most unique individuals who ever walked the earth. A hero in the faith. A giant among men and women. Shaul. Paulus. Paul the Apostle. And with all of the multifaceted background that made him unique, he was willing to say, it doesn't really matter, all that stuff. I'd rather be found in Jesus Christ and receive His righteousness and not my own. That's when He began to really live. That's when the transformation took place. Lord, I pray if anyone is trusting in themselves or their background or their own religion, that today they would cease and put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.